We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. Man, I'm messing that up. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19. 9, 1 through 19. So go ahead, if you're looking on your Bible with us, like if you have a physical Bible, put your finger there. But if you don't and you're looking on your phone or uh, anywhere but the screen, because these next two things won't be on the screen, uh, I want you to... Um, just look at a few places with me before we get into the scripture this morning. Because this morning, what we're going to be looking at is the conversion of Saul. Um, now, we have seen already this man named Saul introduced to us. And most of us know that eventually Saul, after being converted, then goes by a name that um, so often we misunderstand what this name actually was. Often we think of Paul as the secondary name, so of great importance and significance uh, almost like a renaming of God, but God never tells him to go by a different name. He just changes the name that he goes by, and the name would have actually been Paulus, which would have been little man, essentially. And so after Paul's conversion into Christ uh, to the Gentile nations, he starts going by the name Paul, which is an abbreviated version of Paulus, which means little or insignificant. And so Paul, uh, because most likely very short, ugly, stout man is probably what Paul looked like, just so you no. And so Paul goes by this name is Paulus, which means short and significant individual. But before then, he went by his name Saul. Okay. And in this day and time, they would have had about four different names. One of them would have been, uh, three would have been like birth names. And then fourth one would have been similar to that of a nickname, right? And Paulus would have been his nickname. Um, but anyway, so Paul, before being converted, is called Saul throughout Acts. Um, I want to read some scriptures, because I think we're quick to jump into this, or I could be at least, to jump in this and look at just the conversion of Saul. And we know a lot about Paul's life, um, but sometimes we may not put the pieces together so easily. So I want to read the scriptures we know about Paul's life before this moment in which he is converted to Christianity. Look with me in Acts chapter Eight, verses 1 through 3. It says, And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made a great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravishing the church and nurturing house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is a moment after Stephen was stoned to death and the individuals actually took off their outer garments and placed them at the foot of Saul, feet of Saul. So therefore, Saul is the one that's almost facilitating this death of Stephen. But not only that, we see some other times in Acts where Paul recounts his past. So look at verse uh, chapter 23 with me. Chapter 23. Starting in, what is verse 1? It says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, This is Paul before the council as he's transitioning to his sentencing in Rome, okay? So this is the Jerusalem council. The same, similar to that, that Peter and John had been before. Maybe it had changed some in those that participated due to the uh, time difference here. 
for Paul is before this council. He says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up, until, up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you stir, sitting up to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you have ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, said, who do you reveal God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one of part of the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said these things, the dissension arose among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them. Then the great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What of the spirit of the angel spoke to him? I want to pause there, because what we see in this is that Paul is saying, Look, I am a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. He's given us his background here, and we're in a very significant way. But not only that, let's look back at verse chapter 21, verse 37. It says, And Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, and he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a city of no obscure city, I beg you permit to speak to the people. And when he had given them permission, Paul, standing at his steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when they were great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up to the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That guy there, I'm going to pause there. Gamaliel is the one in Peter and John's tribunal council meeting where they were being told to be quiet about the gospel. Is the one that stands up and says, let it be, let it be. That if it is of God, then it'll be of God and there's nothing you can do of it. And if it's of man, then it's going to fade away. Gamaliel was that individual that was just the heartbeat of the area. He was the, the scholar of the day and the scholar of the time. And Paul was saying, look, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He said, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God in all of this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness, bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers, so I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bounds to Jerusalem to be punished. We're going to pause there. Paul is giving a history lesson of what he's been through. 
He's showing himself approved, speaking the Hebrew language, calling them brothers and fathers, speaking of his, his, his teacher, the one he studied under, one of great rapport in this area. But then when you go to chapter 26, we get an even more detailed account here of his past. Starting in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all of the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all this customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. He's made that clear in the other two accounts, right? That he was a Pharisee, born of a Pharisee, that he was trained under Galilee, that he went through all of these customs and he went through the right path, just very zealous for his faith, starting in verse back in verse 5. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which all twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for hope I am accused by a Jew, O king. Why is it, though, incredibly by all of the ones that God raises of the dead. I myself am convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them, even the two foreign cities. It is this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. We'll pause there. What we see in all of this is a very basic background of Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was one zealous for the faith, doing exactly what he thought right in his own eyes based upon his background and his religion. So let's read our scripture this morning, starting in verse chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belongings to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to them, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what, to, what you are to do. Then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose 
from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And on the three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. I want to pause there. It's a different Ananias than the one that we just read about in Acts, later in Acts, okay? Common name, different guy. And it says this, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And when he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias, come in and lay his hand on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard for many about this man, how much evil he has done in your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority of the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he has chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road when which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight. And he filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. We're going to pause there in verse 19. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, I want to read it, summarize it, and then pray. It says, But Saul still set breathing threats and murder against his disciples, the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters of the synagogue of Damascus. That is, that he may found any that belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What we see in this chapter is God takes the very unlikely man named Saul to be his instrument of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Greek, to kings, and to the Jews. He takes a murderous persecutor that would then become the one persecuted and murdered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, we thank you for the amazing work of your spirit and you. Father, you do things that make absolutely no sense to us. God, you redeem and save people that we would quickly think that are not savable or worth saving. God, you take circumstances and situations and you make them into something that we could never imagine. God, you took a man by the name of Saul. You redeemed and saved him, God, because you had something greater in store for him. Father, I am no different than Saul and no one in this room is any different than Saul. God, we were sinners destined to a judgment of yours in a place called hell for eternity long. But God, in your sovereign plan, desiring to save us, you did so so that we could then be instruments of your good news to the world around us. And so we pray now that as we look at the life of Saul, God, we would understand rightly that you had a very specific and ordained plan for Saul and for the one that would be known as Paul later. God, that would vastly differ from that of our lives. But Father, much of the principles that you lay out in front of us in the life of Saul is no different than what you're calling us to. So 
So my prayer now is that we would see Saul's life. And in seeing his life, we would see the desire that you have for all believers. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Just quickly, I want to address some things in these first three verses. But I think that I've handled those well in the sense of, I just want us to see who this man is. This is a man that was trained by the Jewish elites. This was a man that was born a Roman citizen. This was a man that was persecuting the church. Why? Because he thought he was doing exactly what big G God wanted him to do. Because he grew up in the Israelite background, the Jewish background. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the man, per se. He was the ideal picture of the Jewish individual doing exactly what God would have desired for him to do if Jesus was not who Jesus was. And so what we see in all of this is what he was doing was he was destroying and arresting the people of the way. Now, I want to be clear here. Um, there's two options here of how we want to run with this, the people of the way, okay? The first option is that there was a specific Christian Jewish sect that was called the way in this day and time that was um, not... It's not that they were not Christians. It's just that they were a little more radical and they were a little more progressive in some sorts of trying to progress Christianity in a way that it should not have been. And so it's a possibility that Paul wasn't just killing any Christian, but rather the people that belong to this sect, which is not necessarily the case because we see that he's already been the one that led the charge of, of killing Stephen. The one that I think is more likely is what we see in Acts chapter 18, verse 26. Acts 18, verse 26 says this. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Or you could think of the many scriptures in the Gospels where it says that Jesus is what? The way, the truth, and the life. So most likely, it's not this specific sect in Christendom in this day and time, but rather it's a way that Luke was explaining to Theopolis that he was killing those who belonged to Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. Because he uses that phrase in Luke, right? And so as he's explaining this to the individual, Theopolis, he's addressing that he was killing Christians, specifically. But what we saw in chapter 8 and what's changing in chapter 9 is that Paul was doing that in Jerusalem alone. But as the gospel had progressed to Samaria and all of these other places because of who? Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, that story there. But before that, you have Philip and you have Simon the magician. You have Philip going and progressing the gospel onward throughout the Samarian and the Gentile area. What you see now happening is Saul, the persecutor, is following him likewise and is going to persecute the church of Christ. So Paul is following this work that is seemingly being done to persecute Christians, but he has something in store. The Jewish church, the, the Jewish um, leadership has something in store as well. They give him these papers or letters per se 
to go to Damascus. And the reason why that makes sense is you have the, the temple and the synagogues in Jerusalem. They would have been over the smaller synagogues that would have been throughout the Damascus area, okay? Jerusalem, like uh, think of Catholicism in sorts. You have like the Roman, the Roman church, right, that is kind of overseeing all of it. The Pope, per se, in this day and time, you had the, the synagogue and the temple in uh, Jerusalem that then kind of oversaw all the surrounding synagogues. Synagogues were not temples, but they were much like our doing church today. They would gather for the teaching of the law and of a psalm and of the um, of a law, poetry, and a prophet, right? Every week they would gather, they would teach through these things. So Paul, getting permission from the, the big dogs in Jerusalem to go to these places, Damascus, to take these people that were gathering in the name of Christ and then to bring them back to Jerusalem to be charged either to imprisonment or death. So this is what Saul is doing. He's on his way to Damascus to go and to do this. But they had something against Tor, but God clearly had something else in mind. And what we see in this, this morning, and what I want us to walk away from this, is very simply that God used a supernatural and ordinary mean to save Saul. What I mean by that is, well, let's look at it, starting in verse 3. Now he went on his way and he approached Damascus. There's suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And he falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? There's a question mark there. He's generally asking who you are because he did not know this Lord. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The man who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but not seeing no one. When you read verse 11, I mean verse 7 here, and then you read the two other accounts of Paul, reckon um, Paul mentioning this moment in the two trials, you see some inconsistencies here. Uh, but we have to remember Luke is writing a historical account, so there could be some variations there. But also, they're not at odds with each other. They seemingly are inconsistent. And I'm not getting into all that. We can have that conversation later if anybody wants to have it. But essentially, one would say that they did not hear, but they saw. And then this one says here that they could not, they heard the voice, but did they not see the voice? Um, but the way that we could understand this rightly is they didn't see anyone and they heard a voice, but they didn't hear what the voice had said because they're confused in this moment. Paul was the one in which Jesus was revealing himself to, not the others around him. So they may not have heard, they didn't see anything. They heard a voice, but they didn't understand the voice. Why? Because the voice wasn't speaking to them. But what we see in verse 8, it says, Saul now rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open and he saw nothing, so he was led by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he went without sight, neither ate or drank. So the first part of what I was saying is this supernatural means in which Paul, God saved Saul. How more supernatural can you get than a vision from Jesus himself, a light shining around him and encountering the risen Savior? There's no more supernatural of a salvation than you can get in this moment here, except for the story doesn't stop there. We see this moment in which Saul inter interacts with the risen Savior through this shining of a light, the voice of him coming out, 
in him hearing, and then he was blinded. Now, this is not uncommon. I'm not going to go there, but you can look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. And you see this moment in which God reveals himself through this light and lightning. We certainly see that in the Exodus account when there's a fiery tornado that's guiding them in the day. Uh, there's a tornado guiding them in, in the front of them during the day. And then by the back, what is it? A fiery tornado that's leading them at night. That God revealed himself to Moses. How? By a burning bush. That God has revealed himself throughout all of history through this light or lightning per se. And so God does this to Saul. He interacts and comes into contact with the risen Savior. And I would argue here that it changed his life forever. But I don't want to miss something. A few things. What does Jesus tell him? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. How is he persecuting Jesus, though? Jesus is already dead, risen, sitting back into heaven. He's persecuting Jesus because to persecute his people, to persecute his church, is to persecute him. He is the head of the church, and it is his church. Paul was persecuting him by killing his people. In the high priestly prayer before his death, Jesus asked for protection over his people. And he makes it abundantly clear that they are his and he is the father's. Jesus is saving Paul in this moment. But in this moment, he's also teaching us something very, very, very important about the church. And it's that the church belongs to Christ and no one else. When you talk about the big C Catholic church, the universal church, the invisible church, but even down to the local church, that this is Christ's church, this isn't James's or Troy's or David's or anybody in this buildings. But we also see that this connection of persecution to the believer, Paul is being drastically changed by God through the supernatural means. But the supernatural means does not stop there. Let's keep going. Verse 10. Now for three days he went without sight, neither ate nor drank. On verse 10, And now there was a disciple in, at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. Let's just notice the difference here. Ananias does not respond of saying, Who are you? Ananias is responding as a prophet would in the Old Testament, just as Isaiah did when he interacted God in a vision in Isaiah chapter 8. He says, here I am. He's acknowledging God is speaking to him, but not only God, but he uses this word Lord, which in Luke's accounts here, generally speaking, majority of the times is talking of Jesus specifically. So he says, here I am, Jesus, here I am, Lord. He says, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Now, I don't know the specific name, but that street's still there, which is pretty cool. But go to this street called Straight. It's a different name now. It's not called Straight anymore. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, and behold, he is praying. We know nothing of this guy named Judas, okay? But what we do know in this story so far, that there's two people in the Samaria area, uh, Damascus area. There's two people here that are disciples of Jesus, 
Now, it's going to get even more cool than that, though. It's not, not just because they're disciples of Jesus, not because they're followers of Jesus, but let's keep going and look at Ananias' response. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Ananias doesn't know Saul. He doesn't know that Saul is the one that was personally, experientially, he doesn't know that Saul was the one that killed Stephen. He doesn't know that Saul is the one that had been ravishing the church of Jerusalem. So what that tells us, and we can miss this detail here, is that this guy named Ananias was not someone that scattered from Jerusalem at the day in which Saul killed Stephen and the others killed Stephen. This was a guy that was saved at a different time. He's not of Jerusalem. He's not of the temple. He's not of any of those things. He is one that is in Damascus, that is a disciple of Jesus, that was not there during the early church moment. Why is that important? It's because God is not using Peter or John or Philip or any of these individuals that were there at this point. God is moving past the disciples, the twelve, to other believers. Even in saving Saul, he's moving past this certain section of believers in Jerusalem to take his gospel further. He's not hesitating any longer to save the Gentile and the Greek or any of those things. Paul is this moment in which Saul is being saved. His teaching is not only that God is saving him in a miraculous but ordinary way, but it's teaching us about what God was doing in this moment. And it was that God was using an ordinary man to save someone that would be an extraordinary gift for the church. This wasn't one of the 12. This, this wasn't even one of the 120. There's a possibility he might have been there the day of Pentecost, but he's not one that remained there. This could have been a convert from Jesus' ministry when he traveled here. We don't know about Ananias, but what we do know about Ananias is he didn't know of Saul personally, but only what the people had told him. So, let's keep going. Ananias said, I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done for you, saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority of the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. Paul is there. We can look at Ananias' response here and judge him way too quickly. Because we can look at it and say, you know, he wasn't in tune with the work of the Spirit. I mean, we just got back from a story of a guy named Philip who took off running after this unknown chariot in the middle of this 60-mile ro- dirt, dirt road in the middle of nowhere. And so we can look at this guy named Ananias and think, how dumb is he? Why wouldn't he just listen to God? Jesus is clearly talking to him vo- verbally and out loud. He's seeing him in a vision. Wouldn't that be enough? And then we could even almost say to ourselves, it would be enough for me. I would know for sure that I should go and share the gospel with this individual. But, and no matter who they were. But honestly, we would respond, respond in just like Ananias. Because this is a guy that was killing people. 
And not just people in general, but Christians of this area. And now has authority in the area to take them back to Jerusalem, imprison them, and persecute them, and, and even lead them to death. We would have responded the same way of Ananias here. We would have naturally been hesitant at the beginning. But Ananias then responds to God that way. And what does God say in response to him? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentile and the king of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. Pause there. Ananias was reluctant at first by all means, which I think is very natural. I don't think we should look at Ananias with any kind of, any kind of ill intent here. Ananias was responding like a man responds when he's told to go and introduce himself as a Christian to a man who kills Christians. Now, if I would be transparent in my own life, there's been times where I've been guided by the Spirit to speak to anybody, someone that did not bring me any kind of spiritual or physical uh, threat where I didn't listen. So Ananias... It was not responding any different than we do in our lives. But what I want to pause there before we get into the rest of this account is this supernatural work of God here. The first thing he does is he reveals himself to Jesus, reveals himself to Paul through a light on a road to Damascus, blinds the man, and then tells him to go into Damascus and wait for a period of time. But even in between that, there's apparently another vision from God that there was a man named Ananias that was going to come to him and, and, and pray over him. So God is doing something supernatural there, but not only there, but he's then revealing himself through a dream to this guy named Ananias, this unknown, unnamed disciple of Jesus to go to this other unknown, unnamed disciple's house and pray over this man. Certainly, there's this something about the story that we're missing here. It's but how does Paul even get hooked up with this guy named Judas, right? So God is clearly doing something supernatural in the life of Saul. I would argue he does the same in the spiritual conversations that we get to have with people about Jesus, the gospel encounters. That if we trust in and pray in the Spirit to lead us and guide us and to direct us in opportunities to proclaim the Gospels to unbelievers, then God will do something supernatural in softening their hearts and providing for us the words we should say. But what I also want us to see this morning is there's something overly ordinary about this encounter as well. First and foremost... If God was strong enough and mighty enough to reveal himself to Saul on the road to Damascus, certainly he didn't need a man named Ananias to pray over him to move the scales from his eyes. And this is a man that is not a disciple of the 12 or the 120. It's some random guy in Damascus that was faithfully following Jesus. Just an ordinary man. So what we see in those two things is God is using some very ordinary means too. It's not all highs. Sometimes it's lows, right? It's not all supernatural, all uh, overly spiritual. There's an ordinary means here as well. And what is that ordinary means? 
So Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road by which you come and has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pause. I want us just to envision just for a moment that walk or that horse ride, however far it may have been from this dude's house was going through his mind the entire time of what do I say in this moment? Or think about the prayers he would have prayed in preparation of meeting this guy named Saul. And when he gets there, what does he do? Brother Saul, you, Lord, you, the Lord Jesus, appeared to you on the road in which you came. God told him that. And then he sent me to regain your sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And God told him that. All he does here is recount the words of God to God in this prayer to Saul. So all he's doing is repeating what Jesus has already told him. And in this, what happens is in verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized. And taking on food, he was strengthened. So the outcome of the faithful prayer of Ananias over a man named Saul, whom this miraculous encounter and dreams and all of these things occurred, was that the scales fell from his eyes. He could physically see again. Then he rose and was baptized. What I would argue is what he doesn't highlight here as strongly as he has in other accounts of baptism, and he didn't do this in the life of Philip either, and the Ethiopian eunuch, is that when he was baptized, there was this indwelling of the Spirit of God on them. You see that specifically at the end of the prayer. It says, and he filled with the Holy Spirit, that he came to put his hands on him, to pray for him, so that he would regain his sight, be saved, and uh, gain his sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So being filled with the Holy Spirit is a connection here of being saved, to come into Christ and salvation, that being filled with the Spirit was a symbol of the salvation in which he gained through Christ Jesus. And a symbol of that, a physical symbol of that, was being baptized. So we see another thing about this ordinary guy changing from that of Jerusalem is that now this guy named Ananias that no one knew about before now is praying over a guy and then baptizes him. And in baptizing him, what happens? He's filled with the Spirit. Why did Peter and John come to Samaria earlier? Because they were not baptized in the Spirit. They did not received the Spirit. But God is changing things around a little bit. He's doing it different in this circumstance. And that circumstance here is that when he baptizes this individual, that in baptism the Spirit of God dwells upon him. Not no different than our moments in salvation now. But I don't want us to miss the ordinary means of this. This moment of Paul being regaining sight, being baptized, a.k.a. saved, being filled with the Spirit, a.k.a. saved, is no different than the way anybody else has been saved. The only thing that is supernatural here is the way in which God caught his attention and sent Ananias to him. But what I would argue here is you probably could not have one without the other. 
God is a supernatural God that does amazing and wonderful and unique and things that we just don't even think about. But everywhere that occurs in Scripture, we also see this ordinary means of interaction with a man that then helps this individual follow Jesus. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Why would God do it this way? If God is sovereign, if God is omnipotent, if God is knowing all, if God is in control of all things, why would they do that? Why would he do this? Why would he go this means of saving people? Because it is God's desire for you and I, for other Christians around the world, to be the messengers in which he calls individuals to himself. Think about it this way. What does he do with the disciples in Matthew 28? And I know I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to read this in a moment. What does he do in that moment? To go therefore, make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Or even Acts 1.8, the one that we've talked about a lot in this scripture, is that you will be my witnesses, that when the Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. If God could supernaturally save people, why does he need people to do other things? Why do we proclaim the gospel? Why do we pray over? Why do we baptize? Why do we do these things? It's because, yes, God could save anybody in a supernatural way, but that's not the way that God has designed this. It makes no sense to me, it should make no sense to you, that God would take broken, fallen apart individuals to be the people that would proclaim the gospel to others. It makes no sense that God would take sinful individuals that he has redeemed and the only thing good in them is the fact that he has redeemed them and now that we live in the righteousness of the Son, that we are good people. Why are we good people? Not because of what we do, but because what Christ has done in us. Why would God use broken people to save broken people? Because God receives glory and honor in that. It makes no sense. It would make more sense for God just to reveal himself and save people without using people, men and women, to be the messenger. But that's not the way that we see God doing this. Even in this overly supernatural encounter, we still see an ordinary means at the back end of it. So I think what we should walk away from in this is two things. Let's first and foremost, and speaking to myself first here, okay? Let's not miss. Let's not miss the Spirit's leadership and guidance in our life because any work of saving a lost soul is a supernatural work of God where He regenerates the soul, brings them to Himself, and redeems and saves them. And God appoints opportunities for us to do so. So let's not miss that. Let's be people that would live in the Spirit and would trust the leadership of the Spirit to guide us and direct us not only to conversations, but in conversations. Because what does, what does Ananias say to Paul, Saul in this moment? Exactly what Jesus already told him. 
So he's just listening to the Spirit here of what to say in this moment. And it's very basic. Is you know what happened to you. Now God has sent me to do exactly what God wants us to do in this moment. And Paul, Saul, responds accordingly. So one, let's not miss the supernatural. <laughs> That's unique. But also... Let's not miss the ordinary. See, the reality here is there's nothing special in any of us. We're ordinary people. We're ordinary people that God has gave a mission to and he will use that. He will use us we trust in the spirit and do what he calls us to do to do an extraordinary work of salvation in the life of the people but the reality here is it's on us we are called to go and to do and so my question here is I'm going to reverse these things and I'm going to ask this as joy comes Are you trusting, am I trusting, in the supernatural work of God as we go and do the ordinary part of it? Or am I trusting so much in my own ability that the supernatural never occurs? So the reality is we can be people of the gospel without being people of the spirit in the gospel. So my question is very simply this, is are we going to be people that are going to go after we read Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, are we going to people that go and we go not only to proclaim the gospel, but we go to proclaim the gospel with the power and the work of the Spirit in our lives, not only to save people, but to use us in doing so. That we're going to pray in this moment that we sing this last song together. Pray for the spiritual leadership and guidance in our life in such a way that we would be people that are aware and abundantly uh, open to the opportunities in which God is providing us. And being able to proclaim the gospel to lost souls. Or to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ that have already come to know him but need some encouragement. Let's be people that trust in the Spirit of God to lead and guide us, to trust in the power of Jesus to save, and trust in the ability of the Father to save those whom He desires to save. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You. We pray now that as we go to You in song this last time, You would be magnified and glorified, but we would rightly respond and pray for your work in our lives to save those around us. We pray this in your son's holy name.